following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Thanks, Ruben. Thanks for the invitation to be here. I always enjoy being here with you at Shaw Community. And um, Ruben mentioned that I'm kind of bringing the word from out west um, just uh, um, through immigration. He didn't mention that actually we spent 30 years of my life um, growing up in South Auckland. Had that been known, you might have been without a speaker. Um, But it is is good to be here this morning. Um, And and I want us to kind of continue on in the season of Easter together. So if you have your Bibles, do you want to turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, um, starting at verse 26? Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, starting at verse 26. As they led him, Jesus, away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country. And they laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of people followed him. And among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green... What will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him when they came to the place that is called the skull. They crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come this morning to understand your word. We don't want to overstand your word. We want to understand your word, to put ourselves under it, to let your word slay us and make us alive, to redeem us and to shape us into your image by the power of your spirit, to the glory of the Father, we pray. Amen. Um, last week was Holy Week, uh, when we, you know, really the most significant week in the Christian faith, the time in which we celebrate the resurrection. But sometimes I think we move on quickly from Holy Week, kind of onto next business. You know, Easter's done and dusted, and we're on to next business. Um, this morning I want to linger a little more at the cross, and to ask what it means for us to begin to walk in the way of the cross, because after all, the only life that's been resurrected is a crucified one. So what does it look like to walk in the way of the cross? How are we to respond to the cross? Uh, In this passage, the women who were following Jesus, um, they were participating in the traditional form of mourning. As Jesus walked the now famous road, the Via Dolorosa, towards the place of the crucifixion, they responded with customary mourning. They cry and they wail, because they know where this is all headed. They cry and they wail as they follow Jesus on this death march. Poor Jesus. Look what they're doing to him. 
Perhaps this is how we're meant to respond to the cross, to, to pity poor Jesus for what they did to him. Poor Jesus. Look what they did to him. But if this is our only response to Christ's crucifixion, then we need to hear Jesus' words in this passage very clearly. Jesus says to us, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. This is the only thing that Jesus says no to in his entire death march. It's the only thing that Jesus forbids about his death, and it's so important that it comes at the beginning of the narrative. Jesus does not want the easy, spontaneous emotion of pity to be our only reaction. That kind of quick release of tension. To fall into pitying Jesus at the cross is to miss the point. These surface reactions are too shallow, they're too easy. They make us focus on the wrong things at the wrong time and in the wrong ways. Jesus does not want our pious sentimentalism, and in fact, he forbids it. He forbids it. Do not weep for me, says Jesus, because he knows how easy that reaction is. And I think this is particularly true for us in the West, and by West, I don't mean just West Auckland. Um, we live in a culture where feelings are kind of part of entertainment. Um, we're moved to tears and we pay for the privilege. We go to the movies and we're moved to tears and we pay for the privilege. And now there's nothing wrong with crying. I'm not suggesting we become cold-hearted Christians. Um, many movies capture human emotion and human realities. And they move us to tears. But often when we're moved to tears, we wake up the next morning after the movie's done and dusted and wondered, what was it that we were crying about again? Um, in the movie Fight Club, which I hope not many of you have seen because it's just not for Christian eyes, um, I'm told that there is a man who suffers from insomnia. Um, and he finds that the only way he can sleep is by having a good cry. And actually, the best way to cry is to go along to recovery groups. He goes to the group not because he suffers from what they suffer. He goes along as a tourist because he needs a good cry. He goes there uh, to feel something, to get the shot of endorphin rush, and then the sleep-inducing effects of adrenaline washout. You know, after the adrenaline go has gone, um, you're just left wanting to go to bed. So the man is a faker who just wants a good cry. Then he notices that there's a woman attending these groups who's doing exactly the same thing. She's another faker, another tourist at these recovery groups. But the problem for him is he can't cry if there's another faker present. So she's kind of ruining his buzz at being at these groups. So he confronts her and threatens to expose her, to which, of course, she offers the same. So they end up coming to an agreement. They divide up the various recovery groups that run. Nice, tidy agreement between the two of them. She gets half and he gets the other half. Bowel cancer, Alcoholics Anonymous. Tuberculosis, lymphoma. Testicular cancer, uh, and on it goes. A tidy agreement between two professional mourners. In this passage, 
Jesus drives away the professional mourners. Jesus forbids us to be professional mourners at the cross. He's not looking for our pity because pity doesn't change anything. Pity sees the World Vision ad come across the screen and says, poor things, and then changes channel. Pity doesn't make a difference in our violent world. 2,000 years of Christian pity about poor Jesus on the cross hasn't made any difference to this violent world. Pity doesn't change the fact that when security forces get a prisoner handcuffed and alone, they just can't resist the urge to knock them about a little bit, whether it's in Guantanamo Bay or in the back room of Caiaphas' house. Pity doesn't change anything. Pity doesn't change the fact that it's still expedient for powerful forces to eliminate one unimportant but awkward customer in order to keep the balance and maintain the power, whether this is in uh, North Korea or it's from the high priest. Pity doesn't change these things. Pity doesn't change the fact that it's still too easy for leaders to wash their hands of involvement in issues of justice, whether it be Pilate or whether it be the president or Prime Minister of wherever. Pity doesn't change the fact that it's still too easy for ordinary, decent, but frightened men and women to get enchanted by groupthink. Whether it be to yell, crucify him, or to feel the need to sign yet another petition that's at the back of the church. Pity doesn't change the fact that it's easier to walk away than to be branded a friend of someone who's unpopular, whether it be Jesus at the foot of the cross or someone who's fallen from grace in the church. Pity doesn't change anything. And Jesus says to us, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. See, pity is our way of staying out of the story. It's our way of kind of shifting responsibility and keeping the crucifixion at arm's length. Pity turns the crucifixion into a world of they's and them's. Look what they did to Jesus. Look at those bad people, poor Jesus. And when we turn the, the response to the cross into pity, it leads to another thing that we often respond to the, the cross with, which is blame. Pity and blame. If only we could find out who they were that killed Jesus. If only we could figure out who Jesus is talking about when he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. If we knew who they were, then we'd know who killed Jesus. We'd be able to bring them to justice. We could say to Jesus, don't worry, we got this. Don't worry about it, Jesus. We've got this covered. We'll bring them to justice. If it's them, we'll make them sorry for it. Father, forgive them, says Jesus. And we say, don't worry, Jesus. We'll get them back. We'll find out who they are and we will make them sorry. And maybe the best way for us to um, begin our hunt for the killers of Jesus is to reconstruct the scene a little, um, to climb up onto Jesus' cross and look out in search of them 
Who is Jesus talking about when he says, Father, forgive them? So I want you to imagine that we've climbed up onto the cross of Jesus and we're looking out over the scene to find them. Who is it that Jesus is talking about when he says, Father, forgive them? Uh, From up here, we can see them all. We can see the low-ranking Roman soldiers who were given the orders to do the dirty work. If we strain our eyes a little more, uh, we can see the officer who gave the orders watching closely. We can see soldiers trying to appease their guilty consciences by gambling for Jesus' clothes. Retail therapy um, has been always a helpful distraction. One of them is holding um, up their feet against Jesus' sandals to see if they can bag a bargain. Father, forgive them. Are the soldiers them? Are they the ones that Jesus is talking about? Did they kill Jesus by carrying out the orders? If it was them, we'll get them back. We'll make them sorry. As we look out from the cross, we can see some of the Jewish leaders of the people. For them, the thought of the Romans turning off the tap on their tax breaks is just too frightening to imagine. With Jesus, the leaders of the people are caught between their love of God and their fear of Rome. Jesus just seems so hell-bent on causing trouble that, of course, the Roman authorities were going to do this. He was bound to die. It's better for the Romans to make an example of one than it is for them to wipe out the many. The Pharisees, uh, they're busy backslapping and high-fiving each other, giggling like hyenas. And not only have they gotten rid of their biggest critic, but they're going to get a healthy payday from the Romans for getting rid of another troublemaker. Father, forgive them. Are they the ones, the Pharisees and the leaders, are they them? Are they the ones that Jesus is talking about? Did they kill Jesus because they wanted to feather their own nests? If it's them, well, we'll get them back. They'll be sorry. As we look down from the cross, um, we see the crowd. The crowd that are swept up in the moment, hating and disowning and crucifying Jesus, just like we do to our sporting saviors when they lose. Uh, Shouts of Hosanna become shouts of crucify him, crucify him. Father, forgive them. Is the crowd them? Did they kill Jesus because they got caught up in the moment? If it's them, well, we'll get them back. And they will be sorry. As we look out from the cross, what we can't see are Jesus' friends. We kind of have to get the binoculars out to try and find where Jesus' friends are. The disciples are missing. They're away on the edges of the crowd. If they stood any closer, they'd be in grave danger. One word from them and they'd be next on the cross. That's why we find that story about Peter. So they don't get too close. They want some distance between them and their teacher. Father, forgive them. Are the disciples them? Are they the ones that Jesus is talking about? Did they kill Jesus by hanging him out to dry? If it's them, well, then we will get them back. They will be sorry. There's just so many suspects in this cold case. So many suspects. Who does Jesus mean when he says, Father, forgive them? Uh, Judas, the chief priests and the scribes, Pilate, 
Herod, the Roman soldiers, the crowds, the disciples, who are they? Who are them? For centuries, actually, Christians have tried to answer this question, who killed Jesus? We have sought out those who we thought killed Jesus and we got them back. Actually, in Christian history, we've slaughtered and killed those who we thought to be the enemies of Christ. The Jews, the pagans, the savages, the heathen. Whatever way you do the maths, Jesus' death has been avenged million times over by Christians who have distorted the gospel. Christians who have twisted Jesus' gospel of grace and forgiveness into a 2,000-year nightmare of racism and revenge. If Jesus won't stand up, they say, and act like a proper God, then we'll just have to get organized and do it for him. We'll teach them a lesson. They'll be sorry. And our prayer becomes, Father, forgive them once we've made them properly sorry for what they've done. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Who was Jesus talking about? Well, try as we might, we cannot blame them because they are us. Sure, we might not slaughter uh, people in the same way as some of our Christian phobias, but look at who Jesus asks for forgiveness for. He asks for forgiveness for the cruel, humiliating remarks made against suffering people. Brutal, degrading violence. The abuse of political, military, and religious power. Loveless religion without compassion or mercy. He asks for forgiveness for the fear that provokes crowds to blindly follow the loudest voice. The mob spirit that exalts in a victim's suffering. And he asks for forgiveness for his confused and complicit followers who abandon their principles when the heat comes on. The reality is that Jesus is praying for us. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He's praying for us because we share the same sinful condition. Of course, we like to um, distance ourselves when it suits us. Um, perhaps a bit like maybe next week, where I thought it was very good of Reuben to offer to play point guard in one of those teams. Um, we say, woohoo, we won when we win. But we say, ugh, look, they lost. So we like to distance ourselves from them when it suits us. But the reality is, is that they are us. We are among those, that humanity that killed Jesus by our darkest thoughts and our painful actions. We killed Jesus and the passage makes the point we didn't even know what we were doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus offers to us in the midst of not knowing what we're up to, not knowing our kind of crucifying and death-dealing ways. Jesus offers us preemptive forgiveness before we even know what we're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And it's a hard lesson for us to learn. Easter is hard. It's hard as nails. Bill Loder, a... New Testament lecturer in Australia, sets this out in a courtroom drama that goes like this. Crucify them, crucify them, others shouted. The judge replied, why answer violence with violence? Why mourn love with hate? 
Let us beat them, whip them, and punish them, others cried. Punishment, replied the judge, is an admission of failure, a strategy of despair. Well, what then are we to do with those who killed Jesus? The crowd retorted. The judge stood to his feet looking left and right, and then turning to the accused and the crowd, he said, your sentence is to hear the story again and again every year until you recognize your part in the drama, until you see yourselves in this scene. Easter is hard. It's hard as nails. And if we did it, then Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. And the great thing is that this prayer is not, Father, forgive them when they're really sorry for what they've done. This prayer is, Father, forgive them before they even get it, before they know what they've done. The cross tells us that Jesus cares and loves us enough to meet us where we're at, on the outskirts of town, at the dump, Rattling dice, mouthing obscenities, giggling like hyenas or part of a complicit crowd, Jesus meets us where we're at and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus offers us preemptive forgiveness before we even knew we needed it. And if God has answered Jesus' prayer at the cross, which we all certainly hope he has, if we have been truly forgiven, then that is the end of it. It's the end of all blaming. It's the end of all scapegoating, all getting even, all revenge. John's gospel tells us that Jesus' last words from the cross were, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus died to put an end to all of our victimizing, all our bullying, all our scapegoating, all our getting even, and all of our revenge. He volunteered to be the last victim so that his followers need never victimize anyone ever again. It is finished. Easter is hard. It's hard as nails. At Easter, Jesus went ahead of us into the darkness, carrying with him the fire of the resurrection, the fire of forgiveness. To walk in the way of the cross is to walk in the way of forgiveness. Not pity or blame, but forgiveness. Jesus lit a fire in our darkness and called us to follow him with forgiveness. At Easter, we celebrate the fire of a new day. And in the church's history, and, and, and actually in John's gospel, the resurrection is often pictured as the first day, or the eighth day. It's the first day of a new world the day of forgiveness. At Easter, the word who spoke into the darkness and the chaos at the beginning saying, let there be light, now speaks into the darkness and the chaos once more and says, let there be forgiveness. Let there be forgiveness. Let there be forgiveness. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. Some of you may remember the horrible story from 2006 when a gunman uh, entered West Nickel Mines School and killed five young children, five young girls, and wounded five others before turning the gun 
um, on himself. Uh, the violence on innocent children shocked the nation and it shocked the world. But in the long story of that happening, it wasn't the violence that won. It was actually the forgiveness of the Amish community that shocked us the most. Sister Joan Chittister um, wrote at the time, it was not the violence suffered by the Amish that stunned people. It was that the Amish community simply refused to hate what had hurt them. On the day of the shooting, an Amish grandfather stood amongst the community and said of the killer, do not think evil of this man. Within hours of the killings, a delegation of the Amish community went to see the wife of the killer and the mother and father who lived in the same community, gathered them together and said, please stay, do not leave. We love you and we want you to stay here. A leader of the Amish community held the killer's sobbing father in his arms for over an hour. They attended the killer's funeral to support the family in their pain. And they invited the killer's wife to attend the funerals of the girls. And it had a profound effect upon the family. Uh, Marie Roberts, who was the wife, she wrote an open letter to the community about a year later, and it said this, Your love for our family has helped provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can ever describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. The mother of the killer, Laurie Roberts, following the press leaving, then committed herself to work with the victims of her son. She worked with them in schools to help them and assist them in their schooling. One particular girl who had, been, who had survived a direct shot from her son was now wheelchair-bound and using a feeding tube. Laurie Roberts committed herself to be with that girl, um, to nurse her and mentor and, and, and be with her. Uh, Marie Roberts, who's now Marie Monville, she's remarried, the wife of the killer, she wrote a book which, which is called One Light Still Shines in the Darkness. Um, and she said this, reflecting on her Christian faith in the midst of this tragedy. The message of my book is that it doesn't matter how dark the day is, the love of the Lord continues. And he is capable of writing a redemption story over our lives, even in the darkest places. This is what the resurrection offers us. The word from the beginning speaks again of a new beginning. Let there be forgiveness. Jesus created a new resurrection world by forgiveness. And his first words into our darkness were, Father, forgive them before they even get it. Let there be forgiveness. Father, forgive them. And the most important word is forgive. Let's pray. Loving Saviour, we give you thanks for the offer of forgiveness. Not because we get it, but because you give it before we ever get it. We pray this morning for all of us who are in need of forgiveness. 
We pray for people whose relationships are frayed and in need of forgiveness. People's hearts who are heavy and weary here this morning and in need of forgiveness. May they know the love of God that's offered by Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them. Let there be forgiveness. Lord, we give you thanks for your great forgiveness, which gives us life before we even knew it. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.